All right. Larry, come on up here, brother. The man who knows me needs no introduction is going to get one anyway. Uh, you know, it's an honor to, uh, to have you and your sweet wife uh, with us. And so uh, uh, you're part of our forever family, and we're grateful for your ministry. Been praying for your healing. He's had a little surgery going on, and so we want to keep praying about that too. And ask the Lord to bless you as you share the word today. Father, thank you for my brother here. He's very dear to my heart. Uh, thank you, Father, for how he's uh, just continually grows in the Word and allows that Word to work through him. So bless him as he preaches with power and enthusiasm and conviction, your Word that nourishes this body and folks all around. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Good morning, family. Good morning. Here and in the worship center and live stream all around the planet on the other side of the world. And it's amazing what God does. Oh, Lord, my God, I hear the rolling thunder. He is present with us this morning. A few weeks ago, Alan delivered a sermon on Mother's Day. You may remember entitled... The son of man, our brother from another mother. And then Alan called me and asked me if I would address the other side of this on this Father's Day. So I've entitled uh, this morning's sermon, The Son of Man, Son of God, Everlasting Father. The two primary points of, of Alan's sermon were first... Jesus came to this earth to seek us out, to call us out, um, to save us, to relate to us. The Word became flesh. The creator of the universe stepped into his own creation to reveal God to us. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets at various times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us incarnate, in son, in person. He is the exact representation of God's very being, the radiance of God's glory. Secondly, he came to relate us to God, to himself. This is now the glorified Christ in the flesh, seated at the right hand of majesty in heaven, Advocating for us before the Father, there is now a human being living outside of time, yet ruling over all time and space in all of heaven and all of earth. All authority is His. Heaven has been invaded with humanity. Our Redeemer lives. And then Alan opened with his thoughts with this scripture, Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him and gave him the name 
to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, there is nowhere in all of creation that does not bow before Jesus Christ and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The opening words here, in your relationships with one another. Family dynamics can be very, very complicated. Anybody experience that in their life? Very few words in any language evoke the range of thoughts and emotions that we have when we hear the word Father. Today on Father's Day, some of us may have an intense sense of great joy and pride and celebration over our fathers. Perhaps some of us feel a sense of loss, either because we had fathers who were wonderful but are no longer here. They've gone on to be with the Lord. Or because we have unresolved issues with a father that has passed on or still present or even the father we never had or never knew. And so not everybody celebrates Father's Day in the same way. It's a very common term used every day, especially in the circle of psychology and, and counseling to describe all this, albeit rather negative and harsh, but that term is daddy issues. And it's truly terrifying to me personally as a father and as a grandfather, the level of influence and impact that fathers have, either positively or negatively, on our children. And not just our own children, but those who consider us to be father figures in their life. It's terrifying. Why? Because I know the mistakes that I've made. And I know that I'm going to have to give an account for every careless word that I have spoken on the day of my judgment, Matthew 12, 36. Prayerfully, this morning, the word Father brings to mind someone who shepherds and who protects and who encourages and who stays close and never leaves But for some of us, it often brings up adjectives like distant or aloof or passive or present or unreliable or selfish or uncaring or even cruel. Even among Christian families, far too many kids experience emotional indifference and self-centered neglect from their dads. And all of this has a very profound effect on how we relate to our Heavenly Father. This is so prevalent in so many lives, especially those of whom Kathy and I are trying to reach coming out of Islam. A few years ago, we met a young Afghan woman who had been sold by her father at the age of nine to another man to settle a debt as a fourth wife. This man was about 42 years old and he took her home and put her in his basement and used her as a sex slave 
locked her in a basement at nine years old. When she was 13, she conceived and had a son who lived in that prison basement with her. And at 19 years of old, she, she managed to find a way to escape this basement. She took her seven-year-old son and escaped ten years in this prison. She walked out of Afghanistan. She walked across Iran. She worked her way across the entirety of Turkey, surviving and supporting her son the only way that she knew how, selling her body. And through the use of a smuggler, she made it across the Aegean and she made it to Athens and came through my door. And along the way, she had found a Farsi language New Testament and she and her son read that God is a loving father. How do you think that hit her ear? How do you think that hit the ear of the son who knew where he came from? And so I set them down and I took them to a story in Genesis 16. And I told them that Jesus not only atones for the sins that we commit, but He atones for the sins and atrocities committed against us. That Jesus is the perfect and present Father you've longed for and you've never had. And that in this story, this is the one who met a slave woman and her son who had been cruelly abandoned and outcast and were languishing in a desert wilderness expecting to die, and God the Father found her. And He saved them. And her name was Hagar. And she looked at me and I said her son's name was Ishmael. And she lit up because she knew that name because of Islam. And then she read in verse 11 the name Ishmael, what it means. It means that God's hears for the Lord has heard of your misery this is the story of Abram and Sarai and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac the story of how Abram became known as father Abraham family dynamics can be very complicated but then in verse 13 she read this She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. You may have heard it said, don't judge Christianity by Christians. Judge Christianity by Christ. I think the same thing applies in this case. Don't judge the qualities of our heavenly father by our earthly fathers. This is what Jesus came to reveal to us. This is who Jesus came to reveal to us. And so wherever you may find yourself this morning on that spectrum of thoughts and emotion when you hear the word Father, know this. You are not alone. Jesus sees you this morning. Jesus sees you every single morning of your life. His mercies are made new every single morning. He knows your every thought. He knows your every emotion. He sees you and He is close to you.
The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 34. The Lord redeems those who take refuge in Him. There is no hurt in our lives that the nearness of Jesus will not cure. Revelation 21, 5, Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus Christ is going to set all things right in heaven and on earth and below the earth. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. In this life that I live in this flesh, in this messed up world, I live by one thing and that's Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. Faith in the Son of God who loved me And gave himself for me. So this morning, we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter not only of our faith, he is the author and the perfecter of our very humanity. The Son of Man, the Son of God, everlasting Father. We're going to look this morning at Jesus' relationship with his earthly father. Jesus' relationship with His Heavenly Father and Jesus' relationship with us. You ready? What do we know about Joseph? You know, in early church history, we see Mary a lot, especially you know, when we go back to the 2nd and 3rd century. Every piece of art, sculpture, painting, frescoes, tapestries, stained glass, there she is with Jesus. Joseph, not so much. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, gets a whole bunch of scripture written about her. In fact, she's integral to the part of all four gospel narratives from the beginning all the way to Jesus' ascension. Joseph, not so much. The fact is that the last time Joseph is referenced in scripture, not even by name, just the fact that he's present in a situation is when Jesus is 12 years old at the temple. And Think about this. They, they had lost Jesus for three days. Uh, Mary and Joseph have got to be totally freaking out, wouldn't you think? I mean, they've lost the Son of God. you got one job, Joseph, right? And so, and so I love this. In Luke 2, we see this starting in verse 48. When his parents found him, they were astonished. And his mother said, Son, why have you treated us this way? Sounds like something you've heard before perhaps and Joseph is there and your father just wait till your father gets home dear, yeah your father and I have been searching for you in great distress we've been totally freaking out and he said to them why were you searching for me don't you know I had to be in my father's house now look at this verse 50 they did not understand what he was saying to them I love Luke. He gives so much insight. But Jesus went down to Nazareth with them and he was obedient to them. And his mother treasured all these things up in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. Family dynamics can be very complicated. 
How do you lose a child without knowing it for a while in Jerusalem? Kind of a home alone kind of a thing at Passover. Well, we know from Mark uh, chapter 6 and verse 3, there are at least, at least seven siblings in this family. And so look at this with Mark 6. Isn't this the carpenter? Jesus has been doing miracles and prophesying and, and saying that he's the son of God. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't these his sisters? So there's at least two, possibly more. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, you know, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his own relatives, and in his own home. Well, amen to that. Do you think Jesus understands that family dynamics can be complicated? At Christmas time, much attention is given to the angel Gabriel's visit to Mary. But where Mary received one angelic visit, Joseph received three. The Bible doesn't tell us much about Joseph. In fact, Scripture does not record one single word the man ever spoke. But given the glimpses into his character, what do we know about this? It's pretty easy to conclude that he was a humble and upright man who cared deeply about obeying God. He cared more about obeying the commands of God than he did about his own reputation and his own life, his own plans. For example, in the book of Matthew, it tells us that Joseph was a righteous man. He was faithful to the law, Matthew 1.19. When he found out that Mary was with child, he planned to protect Mary and to take the hit, not himself, and, and protect her from public disgrace by keeping things under the rug. Quietly put her away, put an end to their betrothal where he was thought to be the bad guy in the situation. But the angel said, no, you know what? We're not going to play the secret game, Joseph. This is going to be announced by angels. Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. And Joseph immediately obeyed God. Matthew 1.24 Later in the book of Matthew, an angel again came and appears to Joseph and commands him to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt because King Herod wanted to kill Jesus. So again, immediately obeys the angel's command, takes Mary and baby Jesus to Egypt, saving the baby's life. Matthew 2. I want you to think about this. Again, at Christmas time, we talk about this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It's about 90 miles. Journey from Bethlehem to Egypt is about 470 miles across the desert. Now, I don't know how long it would take to walk through a desert with your wife and a brand new baby, but they did it immediately without planning. Didn't book a hotel. Didn't look at her route. They put some stuff on a donkey and took off in the middle of the night. That's who Joseph is. They stayed in Egypt for three years. Three years. And what I'm trying to tell you 
is that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and what other brothers and sisters were born in that three-year period in Egypt were refugees. This is a refugee family. And it makes me think about what Jesus said. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. After Herod died, the angel again, once again, appears to Joseph and commands him to return to Israel, specifically to Nazareth, not to Galilee, because now somebody else is trying to kill Jesus. And so what we see in Joseph's life is a pattern of unquestioning, unreasoning obedience. The word amen we use as a word that says, oh, I give my stamp of approval to that. I agree with that. You know what amen means? Let it be to me. The way you say, Lord. Unreasoning obedience. Amen. Amen. I just lost my job. Well, amen. I got a new job. Well, amen. Because He is the one who rules over heaven and earth and everything in it. He is my Lord and my Savior. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. It's His life. It's not mine. Because He lives, I live. One more thing about Joseph. Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus Christ. Joseph fully understood what it meant to be adopted as a son. You may be aware that there are two genealogies in Scripture. One at the beginning of Matthew and one in the third chapter of Luke. And what you may not be aware of is that the one in Matthew, Joseph's father, is listed as Jacob. This is Matthew 1.16. But in Luke's genealogy, Joseph's father is listed as Heli. Luke 3. In verse 23, why are they different? Some people say, well, this is obviously an error in Scripture. Couldn't be further from the truth. You know what's going on here? The reason for the two genealogies is pretty simple. Matthew is recording Joseph's genealogy. And Luke is recording Mary's genealogy. Both descendants of the house of David. Matthew is following the line of Joseph, Jesus' legal adoptive father through David's son Solomon. Luke is following the line of Mary, Jesus' blood relative, through David's second surviving son with Bathsheba, Nathan. So in a sense, Matthew is proving Jesus' genealogy as the son of God, and Luke is proving Jesus' genealogy as the son of man. Tracing a genealogy through a mother's side is unusual, but you know what else is? Virgin birth. For the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Luke is taking into account an occurrence of a very common Jewish law known as leveret marriage. Uh, if a man died without having sons, this tradition was for the man's brother to marry the widow. So you remember Matthew 22 and the, the Sadducees come up to, to Jesus and like, okay, 
Here, here's a, here's a problem for you. Here's a question. There's this dude, and he's got seven brothers, and this brother dies, and he married that woman, and, and then they try to run this down, and Jesus is like, you're, you're missing the entire point. Okay, so this is that leveret marriage. If a man died without having sons, the tradition was for the man's brother to marry the widow and have a son so that it would carry on the deceased man's name. Okay, this would make, if this is what's going on here, this would make Heli... Uh, in Luke 3, and Jacob, in Matthew 1, half-brothers. And so Heli then died without a son, so his half-brother Jacob married Heli's widow, who gave birth to Joseph, who was then adopted legally by Heli as a son and was the biological son of Jacob. Here's my point. Jesus knows adoption. Jesus understands complicated family dynamics. John chapter 1, verses 11 and 13. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Many people believe that every person on this planet is a child of God. That's not true. That's not what Scripture teaches at all. Every person is created by God in the image of God, but only those who believe in the name of Jesus are given the right or put into position to become children of God. The only path to becoming a child of God is through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. No one becomes a son or daughter of God except through adoption. Son of God, what, let's look at Jesus' relationship with His heavenly Father. Have you ever thought about what it was like in heaven before Jesus came to the earth? What was He called? Has His name always been Jesus? Has He always been the Son of God? And I can see some of you all like, oh, Larry's at it again. Here we go. These are the kind of questions that keep me up at night because I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to pursue Christ. I want to chase Him down and tackle Him and put my arms around Him and kiss Him on His face. I want to know. And so I want you to look back with me at the beginning of John chapter 1, where John takes us back to in the beginning. Look at this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, who? The Word. Was with God in the beginning, and through Him, who? The Word. All things were made. Without Him, who? The Word. Nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. 
He is the light of the world. So the Word is God. The Word was with God in the beginning. And the Word said, let there be light. And the Word is the one who created all things in heaven and earth. Everything was created by the Word and for the Word. Everything is by Him and for Him. He's in all. He's through all. And He sustains everything by His powerful Word. In the beginning, God. Then in verse 14, something very dramatic happens. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth in verse 14 john does something brand new he introduces sonship language do you see this he took us back to the beginning and then something happens that changed a relationship Not only is the Word God, uh, and so the first time that God is used uh, for the first time to describe God and the Word in this relationship, not only is the Word God, the Word is now also the Son of God, which means that what is said about the Word applies to the Son of God. But in addition, John introduces the same, the name Father as it applies to God. So the Father is God, and the Son is God. And then in verse 18, John introduces this Father-Son relationship as the result of the Word becoming flesh. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. We've not always known what God was like, but now we do. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. Now this begs the question, is there an Old Testament precedent that points to a moment in time where this change in relationship would occur? As a matter of fact, there is. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son, and today I have become your father. This is pure messianic prophecy. We understand that the book of Isaiah is loaded with it. And and we see Jesus quoting Isaiah all the time. Jesus is the voice of prophecy. And so we think that Jesus is quoting Isaiah. What, what Jesus is doing is quoting himself, quoting Isaiah, quoting himself. Are you with me? So David is the writer. The promise is through the Davidic line. All these genealogies is pointing to one thing, that this is the son of David, the son of man, in the town of Bethlehem. 
There are more messianic prophecies in the Psalms than anywhere else. In fact, every single word that Jesus spoke while he's hanging on the cross comes from one of these messianic Psalms. Psalm 2 is an amazing example that the Davidic covenant is, uh, of, of everything it is, God is establishing the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of what was spoken in Genesis 3.15 when they have sinned against God and God is proclaiming this punishment against mankind and casting them out of the garden. And he says that this woman will have a seed, will have offspring that will be bruised but he will crush the serpent's head. That's how far back this goes. All these prophecies, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, this covenant to redeem mankind will find fulfillment when the word becomes flesh. Have you ever wondered how Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? John 14, John 10, he said... Me and the Father are one. Christians call God their Father because this is exactly what Jesus taught us to do. But in Jesus' day, nobody ever, ever, ever called God their Father. And Jesus' assertion that God was His Father first occurred in a debate about the Sabbath day. And Jesus claimed that it was proper for him to do healing on the Sabbath because in his words in John 5 and verse 17, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. I'm doing exactly what I see my father doing. In other words, though God rested on the seventh day from his work of creation, his work of preserving this world in a sinful state and ultimately redeeming this world was still ongoing. And moreover, Jesus stated that His own ministry is the continuing work of the Father that sent Him to do it. I didn't come to do my own will, but to do the will of the One who sent me. Whatever I see my Father do, that's what I do. My Father and I are one. Jesus says to His Father, says that the Father is not willing that even one would be lost and that His job was to come and seek and to save the lost. And that is why in the very next verse, verse 18, they're trying to seek all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His Father, making Himself equal with God. The Old Testament seldom ever uses the word Father to describe God, but there are at least a couple of important texts I want to show you in which he does. Both of them are found toward the end of Isaiah, and they occur in the context of sin and repentance. And the first one reads like this, Isaiah 63:16. But you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us, nor Israel acknowledges you, Lord, are our Father Our Redeemer from old is your name. And the second one reads like this, Isaiah 64, 8 and 9. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure. Lord, do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. 
Now, it may look at first glance that Isaiah is calling God Father because he is the creator of mankind. But it's not quite that simple. God is the creator of every human being, but he had not established a covenant relationship with everybody. It is clear from the way that Isaiah is dressing this that he regards Israel's covenant relationship as something special, very different from what could be said about any other people group on this planet. So for him to call God Father was to acknowledge a particular covenant relationship in this context as God's chosen people, the children of Israel. This very covenant context is God's fatherhood qualities, and we see it in other places, particularly just one I want to look at is Psalm 103.13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This makes me think of Matthew 9 and 3. Jesus saw the crowds, and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. New Testament is very clear that Jesus absolutely establishes the fact that we are to address God as our Father. The Lord's Prayer, for example, when you pray, Luke 2, Father, hallowed be your name. But is there anywhere in the Old Testament that assigns the title of Father to God by name? Names like I am that I am or El Shaddai, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, or Adonai, or Elohim. Matter of fact, there is, in one place. And that is in Isaiah chapter 9. And to whom is this title ascribed? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, ever. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. He is going to set all things right forever and ever from that time on. What time is that? The Word becomes flesh. He is resurrected. He is magnified and lifted high and given the name that is above every other name and seated at the right hand of majesty. And He is coming back to gather those who belong to Him. How is this going to happen? Through all the complicated family dynamics and all the stupid decisions people make, the zeal of the Lord Almighty is going to accomplish this. Please hear what I'm saying. New Testament gives us blinding clarity that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons of the Trinity. This is God. In the beginning, God. This is not oneness theology. This is not... Modalism or partialism or any other heretical view of God. Scripture never explains why the Father and the Son and the Spirit are related to each other in this way. But it is absolutely clear in the fact that they are. 
This is the mystery that has been hidden for generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's holy people. This mystery is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now we know in part, now we see in part, but when we see Jesus, the God who sees us, we will understand and see Him as He truly is, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. My point in all of this is no matter where you're at this morning, in your heart, in your thoughts, in your circumstances, no matter what you've done, no matter why how you might have messed up your life, the life of your family, your kids, your grandkids. Jesus sees you this morning. While He was still a long way off, His Father saw Him and was filled with compassion for Him. And He ran and grabbed the Son in His arms and kissed Him on His face. Can you not see with me That Jesus is the everlasting Father in this story. And that if we can manage to crawl out of the pit that we're in and crawl into the lap of Jesus Christ and let Him hold us in His arms, He will cure every hurt in our hearts. He is our everlasting Father. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Deuteronomy 31. This is the same God who sits here and says, listen to His voice. Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. Learn from Me, for I am gentle. And I'm humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Come to Jesus and live. Pray with me. Lord Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. For seeking and for saving. For being faithful and true. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are our everlasting Father, mighty God, wonderful Counselor. We need you to come and be our Prince of Peace today, Jesus. In the name that is above every name, we pray this at the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.